0: I have a quiz to show you. If you can bring it up, Booth, I will advance it to um, one question after another. Uh, It's been a while since I've done anything like this, but uh, I wanted to begin today's message with a quiz. There we go. Now, I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, especially because, I think it will become obvious as we proceed, you don't want to be exposed as ignorant. Okay, Um, so you just think your answer. How long did the hundred years war last? 116 years. Okay, well we'll give the historians um, the uh, latitude of rounding off numbers, but it was 116 years from 1337 to 1453. Um, What about this one? What country makes Panama hats? The answer is Ecuador. Um, From what animal do we get cat-gut? Would you believe sheep and horses? In what month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? And the answer is uh, November. The uh, Russian calendar was 13 days behind ours. What is camel's hair brush made from? And uh, The answer is squirrel fur, okay? Um, The Canary Islands are named after what animal? Okay, that one's easy, right? What is it? What? Did somebody say dog? Somebody in the back got that, yes. Uh, The Latin name for the islands was Insularia Canaria, island of the dogs. So that's how that, uh, that got its name. Uh, What was King George VI's first name? Now by now you know it must not have been George. Uh, It was actually Albert. When he came to the throne in 1936 he respected the wish of Queen Victoria that no future king be named Albert. Uh, What color is the purple finch? Crimson. Where are Chinese gooseberries from? New Zealand. Go figure. How long did the 30 years war last? I asked you at the beginning of the quiz how long the 100 years war lasted. How about the 30 years war? 30 years. Ha! Gotcha. (laughs) Now, um, why do I do this? Not just for fun, but to make a point. And the point is that some of what we know just ain't so. And there should be another slide that has the words, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18. If I put that on the screen, you might think you know all there is to know about this familiar story about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying at the temple, and that therefore you can tune out for the next few minutes. Wrong. You might think that when you see the word Pharisee in the Bible or on the screen, you know what it means. It means uh, something like the black hat on the cowboy in the old-fashioned Western movies. As soon as he appears on the screen, you know, there's the bad guy. Wrong. We'll learn something about Pharisees and tax collectors and God and ourselves from Luke chapter 18. Open your Bibles please or scroll to Luke 18 beginning at verse 9 as we continue a series on stories Jesus told. And this familiar story is not as simple as it appears on the surface and like that quiz, there may be some things in here that you think are so that ain't so. Luke 18 Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about, or to, himself, God, I thank you that I am not like all other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Don't imagine that when Jesus blasts the Pharisees, as he does so often in the Gospels, or when he uses a Pharisee as an object lesson, as he does in this short story, that all the hearers, all of his listeners in the first century, were cheering him on. Yes, Jesus, you tell them, you put it to those bad guys. Let those miserable Pharisees have it. Now oh, The crowds were likely surprised, probably stunned, even scandalized. The Pharisees were the guys who tried harder than everybody else to please God. They studied God's word. They meditated on it. They memorized it. They tried to obey its teachings and teach others to do so. Now, I've told the short version of this story any number of times, but I'm not sure that I've ever used Marshall Shelley's own words to tell the story as it really ought to be told. Marshall Shelley was a classmate of mine at Denver Seminary many years ago, and uh, he took advantage of an offer that Denver Seminary made to allow us to take some courses at the local Jewish seminary. And so he took a Hebrew class taught by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Most of the students in the class were like Marshall, uh, Baptist students from Denver Seminary. One night, he writes, Rabbi Wagner was lecturing on the laws of the Torah and said I'm what you Christians would call a Pharisee. I believe that when God speaks I must obey. Nominal Christians and nominal Jews might disagree with me, but I believe God gives us laws to live by. You Christians claim to obey God. Well, I've just described what the law of God is like, the law that I live by. Tell me, you Christians, what laws of God do you obey? Silence. We all knew that if we said the Ten Commandments, we would be laughed out of the room because we obviously didn't follow them, at least the Sabbath law, with the precision that Rabbi Wagner did. No one said anything, but Rabbi Wagner was patient. How do you obey God, he asked. Someone had to speak up, so I gave it my best shot. Well, I said, I guess I had answered the way Jesus did when he was asked to summarize the law. He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Rabbi Wagner smiled, stroked his beard, and said, that reminds me of a story. And Marshall Shelley writes, whenever a rabbi says that, I had learned you're in trouble. Have you ever heard the story of the centipede with sore feet? He asked none of us had. Yeah, he had a hundred feet and they were all sore. He couldn't walk, so he went to the wisest creature he knew, the owl, to ask what he should do. The owl heard his plight and then intoned his solution. Learn to fly. Give your feet a rest and you'll be fine. That's a wonderful idea, said the centipede. How do I begin? The owl retorted, Look, I gave you the principle, the specifics you have to work out for yourself. Well, we all chuckle. That's what you Christians do, Rabbi Wagner said. You talk about loving God, but how? That's a nice principle, but it's not very practical. It lacks specific. We Pharisees like things a little more well-defined. So did the Pharisees in the first century. God said no work on the Sabbath. They wanted to figure out what constitutes work. God said to tithe. And they were diligent about making sure that no part of their income or produce was not tithed. So those who first heard this parable in Luke 18 did not view the Pharisees as the bad guys in black hats. What about tax collectors? Well if I gave you a quiz and you said well the first century tax collector was kind of like the IRS agent in our own time, I would say wrong. A first century tax collector in Israel was uh, often considered the lowest of the low, a traitor to his own people because he worked for the hated Roman occupation. Romans assessed a levy on a given district and assigned a local to collect that and up to a certain point the Romans didn't care whether the tax collector collected more or less as long as he gave them what they told him he had to give them at the end of the period and so many tax collectors already unpopular for working for the enemy ...enriched themselves through deceit and extortion, collecting more than they were required and pocketing the difference. Now there are corrupt people in every profession, but this profession was notoriously corrupt. So Jesus didn't have to tell a parable that featured a dishonest tax collector or a dirty, rotten tax collector. All he had to do was say tax collector, and he has a story featuring the lowest of the low as the good example and the cream of the religious crop as the bad example. Maybe the shock value has dissipated for us because we've heard the story so many times, but Jesus' first hearers were probably stunned. The worst guy goes home justified right with God and the religious success does not. And understanding why this is so is the most important thing in your life. Now you didn't hear me wrong. I didn't even say that it's the most important thing about interpreting this parable correctly. But knowing how you can be right with God is the most important thing in life. Why does Jesus say that the wretch was justified and the righteous success guy was not? Well, let's look more closely at the text. Verse 9 again. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Not all parables come with such a helpful introduction. Well, this sentence helps us get the point. We can't miss it. The story is told as a rebuke to people in every age who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else. The Pharisee's problem in Luke 18 is not that he tried hard to do what's right. The problem is that he is confident that he has succeeded in his efforts and he's confident in his accomplishments and he thinks that because of these efforts and accomplishments his fasting, his tithing, his religiosity God will say you're okay in my book. My kind of guy good enough to be included in my forever family. Now, I've told the story at funerals sometimes. I don't think I've ever told it on a Sunday morning. True story. Years ago, um, there was a presidential campaign, and uh, you know how sometimes the debates between the candidates feature uh, different emphases, typically uh, domestic affairs and foreign affairs and so on. Well, that year, they included a debate that focused on values and spirituality. I can't even imagine that happening today. But one of the interviewers was D. James Kennedy, the well-known pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in Florida, the creator of Evangelism Explosion. And Kennedy asked one of the candidates a question for which he's famous, a question that many have asked as they... Uh, carried out evangelism explosion visits. If you were to die tonight and God were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Now let me repeat that question. It's a good one. If you were to die tonight and God were to meet you at the gate of heaven and say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And the candidate who was asked that question said, I would say to God that if he was going to let anybody in, he'd have to let me in. And he's not alone in his Pharisee-like confidence. Research psychologists have found that there are at least three situations where we are not ourselves. First, the average person puts on airs when visiting the lobby of a fancy hotel. Next, the typical Jane Doe will try to hide her emotions and bamboozle the salesman when she enters a new car showroom. And thirdly, when we take our seat in church or synagogue, we try to fake the almighty that we've been really good all week. Now maybe we will fool some people, Maybe we'll even fool ourselves, but we won't fool God. He, the utterly Holy One, in whose presence even the holy angels hide their eyes, knows that no one is righteous. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and not one of us, sons of daughter of Adam and daughters of Eve, deserve to be in His presence for one moment, let alone for all eternity. Well, there's something else about the Pharisee in this parable. He looks down on everybody else. He doesn't say I'm glad I'm not a robber or an adulterer. I'm glad that my parents raised me well so that I was able to avoid those life ruining kinds of sins. Thank you God for your, your grace and mercy in my upbringing. No, no, that would have been fine. But he says in Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and then with a glance to the other side of the temple, or even like this tax collector. So, you know this tax collector, do you, Mr. Pharisee? You know he's a bad egg? Or do, do you assume so? We should be very, very careful about judging other people based on appearances. At Rutgers University, I enrolled in a course on cultural anthropology. I did not know that there were going to only be two students in the class when I sat down right behind the other student. I assumed others were going to come and fill in the seats. But I sat behind this guy who was, if I had to use one word, scary huge, muscled, with signs carved into his haircut. And you know, this is a long time ago, I'm not young. Uh, This was something new, to have your head mostly shaved, but then even closer shaved with symbols all over. Tattoos all over his body, and you could see a lot of his body because he was wearing a sleeveless, leather studded vest. Ears pierced, gold chains around his neck. You get the picture? He turned around before the professor entered the room and he saw that I had a Bible on top of my stack of books and he said, oh, you got the good book with you, do you? I said, yeah. He said, praise the Lord, it'll be good to have another believer in the class. (laughs) Don't judge people by how they look. And don't judge people by how they act. Years ago, an advice columnist in the newspaper, some of you remember that feature of the actual printed newspaper, featured a letter from a grocery store clerk who complained about the people who came into her store and bought shrimp and cake mixes, fancy cake mixes, with their food stamps. says, it seems to me that people who are going to shop like that and use food stamps must be among the lazy, the welfare cheats. Well, a week or two later, the column was devoted to people responding to that letter from the clerk. One lady said, I didn't buy a cake, but I did buy a bag of shrimp with food stamps. So what? My husband had been working at a plant for 15 years when it shut down. The shrimp casserole I made was for our wedding anniversary dinner and it lasted for three days. Maybe the grocery clerk who criticized that woman would have a different view if she walked in my shoes. Another woman wrote, I'm probably the woman who bought the $17 cake and paid for it with food stamps. I thought the checkout woman in the store would burn a hole through me with her eyes. What she didn't know is that that cake was for my little girl's birthday. It will be her last. She has bone cancer and will probably be gone in six months. You never know what other people are dealing with. Mr. Mr. Pharisee, the tax collector that you feel so superior to, may be as honest as the day is long. He may have been forced into an unpopular job by circumstances and he may be a better man than you. Now, the tax collector could have stood up in the presence of God and said, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, hypocritical like that Pharisee over there, judgmental like that Pharisee over there. But Jesus says, no, verse 13, he stood at a distance, away from other people. Couldn't even look toward heaven. Beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knew what the prayer book says. We have done what we ought not to have done, and we have left undone what we ought to have done, and there is no health in us. He understood that he was unworthy of a relationship with the Holy God, and if he had any chance with God, it would be by God's Mercy. You know how that presidential candidate should have answered the question if you were to die tonight and God were to meet you at the gate of heaven and say to you, why should I let you in? The only answer that would cut it is, I don't deserve to spend eternity with you, but I'm throwing myself on your mercy. I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was dying a death that I deserve so that I might live a life that I don't deserve. Mercy. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this man went home justified. And then our Lord concludes with a principle you'll find in different words, but in last Sunday's text that pastor drew preached you find these exact same words verse 14 everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted exalt yourself in your own eyes be confident in your own righteousness and look down on others and god will have to humble you but humble yourself Acknowledge that you are an unworthy sinner and cast yourself on God's mercy, and He will lift you up, name you as His own, grant you a place at His side forever. This parable still speaks to us 2,000 years later. It speaks to you who have not yet accepted God's mercy. You're here in church. Thumbs up. Doesn't make you a child of God. And It's quite possible that there are some, or some listening online, who have never yet prayed the sinner's prayer. Lord, I acknowledge that I do not deserve you. I do not deserve eternal life. But I believe that you, in the person of your son, bought forgiveness and life for me and I accept it as a free gift. I don't deserve it but I'm counting on your mercy. Thank you. Thank you for what you did for me on Calvary. And if you pray that prayer, tell somebody else about it. But I'm going to make an assumption, a safe one I think, and that is that most of us present and most listening have already prayed that prayer or something like it. But the parable speaks to us too because some of us have been Christians for so long we have forgotten how much we need mercy. We've started to think a little bit like the Pharisee. Or minimize our sin, as, as in this contemporary prayer, benevolent and easygoing parent, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. We're glad to say that we're doing pretty much okay, perhaps even slightly above average. Be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to the unlimited tolerance which we have a right to expect from you. Amen. No wrong here's how Bible people pray and I'm going to invite you to make David's words in Psalm 51 ours as well and maybe the booth will have to advance it because this is not working Psalm 51 read with me will you have mercy on me O God according to your unfailing love According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my transgressions and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation.